Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Thank you for joining us for Fighting Anti-Semitism by Protecting Religious Liberty. Please welcome our host, Sarah Parshall Perry, Legal Fellow in Heritage's Mies Center for Legal and Judicial Studies. Good afternoon, and welcome to the Heritage Foundation's virtual event, Fighting Anti-Semitism by Protecting Religious Liberty. I am Sarah Parshall Perry, Legal Fellow here in the Mies Center for Legal and Judicial Studies at the Heritage Foundation, and I'm pleased to be welcoming you to this podcast today. Today, we'll be considering the legal arguments needed to restore a robust understanding of the Constitution's guarantee of free exercise of religion, a critical bulwark against anti-Semitism. We'll also be discussing whether the Supreme Court's seminal free exercise decision, 1990's Employment Division versus Smith, does enough to protect the religious liberty interests of observant Jews and other minority religions, and whether anti-Semitism advocates fighting this pernicious evil need to reevaluate their former support for the Smith case. Today's event stems from a paper written by my first guest in conjunction with Howard Slew and Dr. Mitchell Rockland, all of whom are members of the Jewish Coalition for Religious Liberty. We will link this excellent paper, Fighting Anti-Semitism by Protecting Religious Liberty, in the comments below, and we'll also share it in the follow-up email to those registered to join us today. Josh Blackman is a national thought leader on constitutional law and the Supreme Court. He is a professor at the South Texas College of Law in Houston. His work has been quoted during two presidential impeachment trials. He has testified before Congress and advises federal and state lawmakers regularly. His work has appeared in the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post, among others. He is also an adjunct scholar at the Cato Institute and the author of three books. His latest, An Introduction to Constitutional Law, was a top five bestseller on Amazon. He has written more than five dozen law review articles that have been cited nearly a thousand times and was selected by Forbes magazine for the 30 under 30 in law and policy. He is also the president of the Harlan Institute. Ryan Bangert is senior counsel and vice president for legal strategy at Alliance Defending Freedom. He oversees the Center for Academic Freedom, the Conscience Team and the Regulatory Litigation Team. Prior to ADF, he was Deputy First Assistant Attorney General in the Office of the Texas Attorney General. He's also served as Deputy for Civil Litigation for the Missouri Attorney General, Josh Hawley, overseeing that state's civil litigation portfolio and over 200 attorneys and staff. Prior to government service, Ryan was a litigation partner at Baker Botts, where he was also a volunteer attorney for ADF and served as amicus counsel in numerous cases, including Trinity Lutheran v. Comer and Salazar v. Buono. He clerked for Judge Patrick Higginbotham on the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals after law school. Josh, let's start with you. Thank you so much. Um, It's a pleasure to be here. I am really grateful to my friends at Heritage for sponsoring this paper uh, and also to Ryan uh, uh, ADF for joining us on a bit short notice, uh, but I think we'll have a wonderful discussion. I think most people here are familiar with the court's general approach to the free exercise clause. Um, In 1990, the court decided employment division versus Smith. 
This decision by Justice Scalia says religious liberty claims are viewed with a very deferential form of review. So long as a policy is neutral, it doesn't target any particular religion, it applies generally across the board, and the government is afforded a lot of leeway. Courts use what's called a rational basis standard to review those actions. And generally, when you have a rational basis standard, the government is going to win. As a result of this case, a Native American employee who chose to use peyote for his uh, religious sacrament was not able to collect unemployment benefits because it was a neutral law. Uh, The Smith case has been criticized for more than three decades. Uh, It seems nonstop. And now there are probably four, maybe five, maybe even six votes in the court to at least second guess the Smith decision. Not quite yet, maybe later, um, but we're getting there, I think. Um, My colleagues and I, my colleagues are Howie Slew and uh, Rabbi Mitchell Rockland, we wrote this paper to identify a lesser known aspect of Smith, and that's how it affects religious minorities, in particular, Jewish people. Um, I think today there's an unfair criticism of religious liberty doctrine, that it's just about helping Christians and helping them, you know, discriminating against gays and lesbians. And I think that's false. It's, It's slanderous for sure, but it's also false. Um, In many regards, the Smith rule would directly affect Jewish people. And we think one of the important ways of fighting anti-Semitism is actually to have a robust protection of religious liberty. We want to give you in our brief time today a few examples of how um, the Smith case really could affect Jewish people. We'll give you a few hypotheticals, one of which involves banning kosher slaughter. As many of you probably know, uh, uh, observant Jewish people have a very strict dietary laws. Animals must be slaughtered in a specific fashion, usually a very sharp blade across the neck. Uh, there can't be any nicks or cuts. It has to be a very clean blade. Um, also, an animal can't be injured in advance. If an animal is sick or injured, it's not uh, uh, susceptible to slaughter. slaughter. Um, many animal rights activists do not like slaughtering animals in this fashion. They prefer to use a stun gun or some other a device that uh, uh, knocks the animal out so that they don't feel the pain of the slaughter. This involves either electric shock or it's basically a gun that puts a bolt into the back of their head, which makes them no longer feel pain. Okay. Um, most rabbis agree, yours may vary, but most rabbis agree that stunning an animal or putting a bolt into its brain uh, or, or spine would render it not kosher. Still, we've seen several governments throughout Europe, more and more by the month, it seems, starting to ban slaughter without this form of stunning. Jews can still, of course, import meat from abroad, I think, but it becomes basically illegal in a home country to ban slaughter. Could this sort of animal rights law fly in the United States? Um, I think the answer is probably yes, which is unfortunate to say. Um, the reason why is these laws are neutral. They're not targeting Judaism or even Islam, which has halal slaughter. They're focusing on animal rights and, and protecting animals from pain. Uh, this law would be generally applicable so long as there are not a lot of exemptions. So I think a state very well could even ban kosher slaughter under the Smith rule. The second example I want to give involves circumcision, which is a ritual that Jews have been performing for millennia. When a baby boy is eight days old, a circumcision is performed. Um, a lot of people do not like circumcisions. They think it's a form of cruelty to children. And in fact, several jurisdictions have actually proposed banning 
circumcision. This has been done throughout world history. Um, so far, it hasn't been done, but it's on the sort of, pardon the phrase, a chopping block of uh, future regimes that may consider, sorry, Sarah smiling, of uh, future laws that European governments may consider. Um, would this law pass under Smith? Possibly if it's crafted properly. Um, you couldn't have it targeted at one particular faith, uh, but I think what you need to have is a law that says uh, doctors can perform circumcision for medical reasons, but rabbis can't. And that perhaps can create some uh, applicability issues, but this law could very well pass muster. A third one involves head coverings, a yarmulke or kippah, which most observant Jews wear at various times throughout the day. A government could decide to have a policy of neutrality with no religious symbols. This is the sort of law we have in France with their strict separation of church and state. Again, so long as it's neutral and generally applicable, it's fine. I'll give you one more example and I'll wrap up, which involves Aruvs. Um, what's an Aruv? Um, during the Sabbath, uh, observant Jews will not carry. And the carry has a very broad definition, even pushing a stroller or even pushing on a wheelchair is, is defined as carrying. Uh, but some Jews think that it's permissible to carry within certain boundaries, like your home. One way that this home can be expanded is by an Arab, which is a sort of this plastic, almost this plastic ribbon, this, this plastic strip that you put around an area, usually on the telephone poles. And if this, this material is posted, this Arab is posted, many Jews will decide it's okay to carry during this time. Um, we've already seen many towns in New Jersey, of all places, uh, react very violently to this. Right? These towns did not want Jews moving in, uh, and they were very open in the record saying, we don't want Jews coming here, we don't want them changing our community, let's deny permission to post this, this plastic material to build the errors. Uh, courts said this is illegal, right? You can't make such targeted statements. But again, if a government's more, more tacit about it, not so quite transparent, these, lo- these laws could also pass review under Smith. One final point, um, the leading organization in the United States to fight anti-Semitism is the anti-defamation of the ADL. And increasingly, the ADL is less and less concerned with anti-Semitism. They focus on LGBT rights and disability and every other thing except for the Jews, right? Um, and we think this is unfortunate. In fact, in case after case, ADL comes down on the opposite side of religious liberty. They are against the Little Sisters of the Poor. They are against Hobby Lobby, right? Uh, uh, they fight consistently to uh, uh, make it harder for religious liberty claims to win. And their perspective is not unreasonable. They say, well... Uh, we think anti-discrimination laws are very important. We don't want to carve out exceptions for them, which I suppose is fair enough in the abstract. But soon again, we will come a time where Jews are needing protections by heightened scrutiny. And the ADL sort of boxed itself into a, a wall where, where they're opposed to this sort of heightened scrutiny. So I think Jews in particular should take a very close look at how the ADL represents the, the interests of Jewish people, and particularly how they are strategizing itself to fight against anti-Semitism in the courts. I will stop here, and I look forward to hearing from my learned colleagues on this important topic. Thank you. Thank you, Josh. Brian, I'd love to get your thoughts on ways to prevent anti-Semitism through the vigorous protection of religious liberty. And then after you're finished speaking, we're going to have a moderated discussion. I have a few points I think that might be interesting for our online audience to take into consideration. So, Ryan, over to you. Thank you so much, uh, Sarah. Thank you, Josh, for your thoughtful comments and an excellent article. And I think that you raise some some very important points and i it's difficult for me to add much 
but I will try to point a few things out that we've seen from our perspective that I think dovetail nicely uh, with what was raised in the article. And the first is, what, what is the point of free exercise of religion? Uh, we've made this point for years that uh, free exercise is not just a matter of protecting uh, the exercise of religion in the narrow sense of worship and rights in, in the context of, of, of uh, services, but rather it's, it's the ability to live in community, the ability to relate in community and to practically live out one's faith uh, in the day-to-day aspects of one's life. And when viewed in that sense, I think what Justice Alito said in his concurrence in Fulton versus Philadelphia is telling when he surveyed uh, some of the, the early uh, views of free exercise uh, from the founding era, he noted that free exercise really could over be, really overbecome, be overcome by peace and safety uh, concerns. That, that concerns about uh, religious exercise and practice infringing on public peace and safety was really the, the limit of where uh, the government's interest could overcome the interest in free exercise, which brings us to Smith. And Smith really was an exercise in resetting or recalibrating uh, those tolerances. Uh, and point, as, as Josh Abley pointed out, uh, no longer was there a, a, a more searching inquiry into the government's interest in regulating free exercise. Rather, the government's interests were almost taken at face value under a rational basis standard of review. Uh, now, that regime has not prevailed throughout the United States since Smith. I think it's important to point out that what we have right now is a very much a hybrid or patchwork regime because shortly after uh, Smith was decided, the Religious Freedom Restoration Act was passed at the federal level, uh, followed by a number of state RIFRAs. And so today you have a very much a patchwork approach where the federal government and many states are living under a pre-Smith strict scrutiny review regime, and other states that have not passed state-level RIFRAs are living under the Smith regime. And, And what has that done? Well, that has led us to a sort of a balkanized approach where where states without RIFRA statutes have been able to uh, really test the limits of how how much they can regulate uh, religious practice, actual religious practice. Uh, you know, take for example uh, what Josh said about uh, the, the kosher slaughter. Um, there's a good argument, I think, as he points out in his paper, that a properly a, cra- a law crafted without any exceptions or exemptions, without any record of hostility. Uh, could probably survive the Smith standard, even if it effectively prohibited any type of kosher slaughter in the state. And that's a shocking, that's a shocking result when you look back at the early purposes and and uh, underpinning justifications for free exercise, which were to allow for free exercise, but for those instances that would jeopardize public peace and safety. And so, where do we find ourselves now with Fulton? Well, Fulton really provides two off-ramps. If you have a a statute that infringes religious liberty, you're not subject to a RIFRA standard. Uh, How how can religious liberty be protected? One, as Josh pointed out, if there's overt hostility uh, to religious practice, much like we saw in the Masterpiece Cake Shop case, where the Colorado Commission was overtly hostile to Jack Phillips' faith. uh, That's one way. Now, if the government actor who is attempting to limit religious freedom uh, is just careful about what they say. The only other off-ramp is if you can just demonstrate the law is not neutral or generally applicable. Um, and as Josh pointed out in Fulton, uh, that test is really now one of evaluating whether the law has exceptions 
exceptions built into the law. And I think what you're going to see Fulton do for those jurisdictions that do not have RIFRA standards in place, it's only, only going to incentivize them to begin eliminating exceptions uh, from these laws that otherwise burden religious practice. And I think that's a very dangerous place to go uh, because in some ways the Fulton decision may have the perverse uh, effect of incentivizing jurisdictions that are in some ways exercising cultural hegemony uh, in a way that infringes religious liberty to, to pass even more extreme versions of laws that impact religious liberty. Um, and so I think that in many ways, the article is 100% spot on, that Smith does have the perverse effect of jeopardizing religious practice, not just the freedom of worship, but the actual freedom to practice faith uh, by religions, especially those that may not find themselves in the majority or have political power in jurisdictions that have the ability to regulate under a Smith standard. Thank you, Ryan. Now I have questions for both of you as we continue this discussion. Ryan, you had mentioned some of the shocking outcomes that are a natural function of maintaining the continued viability of the Smith decision. And also the most recent consideration of Smith was the Fulton case, as you mentioned. Would you classify the Fulton religious liberty victory as won by the skin of its teeth? And that's a question ultimately for both of you. That's a very good question. And I, you know, there's a lot of debate, I think, around whether Fulton has real teeth or real meaning. Um, I, certainly in the short run, I think it's easy to say that a number of, of laws that are applied to restrict religious liberty that are not evaluated under a RIFRA standard uh, have exceptions built into them. That's just sort of the nature of lawmaking, that you're going to make exceptions for unusual cases. Uh, and so I think in the short run, Fulton really has some teeth. Now, the question becomes whether or not those exceptions will be sheared away in the interest of preserving laws against the effect of Fulton. And my fear is that might be what that might be the next iteration of this fight. That's an excellent point. Josh, what say you about whether or not Fulton is itself a religious liberty by the very slimmest of margins because it failed to overturn the Smith decision, and in your mind, what would be the ideal vehicle to overturn Smith and return to that Sherbert standard from 1963? You know, I think the most significant religious liberty case last year wasn't Fulton. It was Tandem versus Newsom. This was a shadow docket case from, uh, I was in California, um, uh, involving the COVID lockdown measures. And I got to say, the opinion in Tandem was a heck of a lot stronger than the opinion in Fulton. And maybe ever the price of unanimity, Fulton got watered down so significantly. Um, Fulton didn't even cite Tandon, so it's unclear what the status of that precedent is. Uh, but there's a majority of the court to adopt the sort of um, most favored nation approach from Tandon, then Fulton doesn't seem quite as bad, but Fulton didn't adopt that. So it's we're in this weird limbo. Um, I think we'll need another vehicle. Um, I'll, I'll, you know, what vehicle will be used to overrule Smith? It's going to have to be a policy without any evidence of targeting and without any evidence of exemptions. Either of those two elements give you the off-ramp, which is sort of what Ryan was mentioning before, right? If you have either of those off-ramps, there has to be a policy that's clearly not targeting and that's clearly 100% no exemptions, no discretions. And, and I'll be honest, I don't know what that law is. Virtually everything has discretions. I'll give you an example actually from just, I think, yesterday. Um, so California, school district in California, 
had a vaccine mandate for students, but they created an exemption for pregnant students, but not religious students. So how, and, and they actually lost in court. So how did the, um, how did the school district respond? They eliminated the exemption for pregnant students, right? So now everyone has to go, but there are still exemptions for people who have certain types of disability based, um, you know, objections to the vaccine. Can you analogize a person who might have physical harm from getting a vaccine due to an allergy to a person who might have spiritual harm? Um, these are these are really hard questions. And maybe, again, this just triggers Fulton and their exemptions, whatever. So I think if you take this exemption language broadly, then you don't necessarily have to overrule Fulton. But I think governments will still try and play fast and loose. Saying, oh, no, this is a different exemption. So I, I, I had this question given to me in advance. I still have a good answer. I don't know what it is. I have no idea. She had, Sarah asked me to think about this. I still don't know what the answer is. I've been thinking about it all weekend. <laughs> yeah, and there's there. I'll, I can point. There's one thing that I can point to that in our experience, and that is we we recently uh, tried Masterpiece Three. Uh, it's amazing to think that Jack Phillips has now been sued three different times. Uh, but yeah. He, in the most recent iteration of that case, uh, we pointed. We, we made the argument that the Colorado Anti Discrimination Act (CADA), which is the statute under which he's been prosecuted. Uh, were sued in this case by by private plaintiffs uh, was in fact subject to Fulton because it did contain exceptions and exemptions. Mm. And the state of Colorado has argued, and the private plaintiffs picked up on that argument that Cotta in fact has no exemptions or exceptions. And the district court uh, accepted that argument and held that Cotta is in fact even under Fulton neutral and generally applicable. So uh, I think in the context of anti discrimination laws that govern access to public. Uh, facilities like bakeries, you may see that you may see uh, an opportunity to to raise that question, um, and that was certainly the focus of the Anti Defamation League's brief in Fulton was protecting anti discrimination laws against being somehow watered down. Thank I'm you. thrilled that you brought up the masterpiece cake shop cases, Ryan, because that actually was one of my questions. We talked about the two off ramps. Um, from Smith. And in particular, I have questions about sort of overtly um, anti-Semitic or religious hostility that might not be supported by the evidentiary records. So is the fact that we have to make determinations of whether or not some subversive hostility exists to religion in the first place, does that further argue for overruling Smith? Because in and of itself, it might at some point be a subjective standard. Yeah, I'll, 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 I guess I'll jump in very quickly on that, Sarah. I think that yes, the answer, the short answer is yes, because it's the, the hostility standard in particular is almost an invitation to craftiness on the part of, of state lawmakers. And uh, you, you can certainly uh, see that as we went back down in Masterpiece. Uh, I, I don't think you're going to see the Colorado Commission again make such pejorative statements about individuals like Jack Phillips, but it's not going to change the outcome of their rulings. Uh, now, certainly you can make the argument for a religious gerrymander, sort of uh, hostility by implication, but I think it's a much more difficult argument to make, uh, quite frankly. And so I do think uh, when, when you deal with, and, and the other point to make here too is, sometimes it's not explicit express hostility, but yet this idea that many of the states that lack RIFRAs are themselves uh, states that I think have progressed far down the road of cultural hegemony. Uh, they, they tend to have sort of very, and this gets into a more broader sociological con discussion, but um, I do think you can have a lot of groupthink going on. And that groupthink itself can be a form of hostility, but it won't be addressed by Smith. 
That's a great point. Josh, what do you say about the fact that ultimately we're forced into a question of whether or not there's an intent to discriminate if the evidentiary record doesn't actually support it, if we know that a law is generally applicable and neutral on its face, but yeah. there might be underlying nefarious intents. How do we square that with a practice, a free exercise understanding that's going to apply to make sure that all religious minorities and majorities are essentially protected? Well, look, I'll, I'll answer the question from at least one minority's perspective, which is Jewish people. Um, Anti-Semitism is the oldest form of bigotry known to man. I know today a lot of folks on anti-black Semitism. <laughs> Anti-Semitism is older, right? And throughout the millennia, governments have said, oh, no, we don't hate the Jews. We're just going to adopt policies that make it hard for Jews to exist. Uh, there's a comment in the thread about this, right? So, you know, I, I, I get neutrality. Um, but if you're adopting a policy that's targeting kosher slaughter, and you know this will make it impossible for Jewish people to exist in a community, or at least really expensive. Or you circumcision, right? If Jews can't get circumcised, you can't live in... The, it's a pretty important covenant to have the circumcision. And you still push this policy without an exemption for Jews. You know, I, I think... I, I don't like saying this, but it's anti-Semitic. At some point, when you favor these policies without any exemption, you're anti-Semitic. The ADL even criticized these various... European nations have banned kosher slaughter as being anti-Semitic. But why? They're neutral policies, right? So I, I think you have to be very careful when you're banning obvious things like kosher slaughter, circumcision, right? Wearing head coverings, which again affects more faith than Jews, right? Saving animals is not the only interest in That was the voice of God, I guess. So let me ask you both um, as we begin to wrap up here, and we've only got a few minutes left. Josh, you've written about the ADL and sort of their nonsensical approach to preventing anti-Semitism by calling for a strenuous supporting and upholding of Smith. But in fact, the stances that they've taken in some of the European nations, as you rightly pointed out, actually conflict with some of the stances that they've taken in the United States, kosher slaughter, for example. How do they circumvent the difficulties inherent in their own perspectives and is there something that we can point out distinctly in our discussions with organizations like, for example, ADL, who sort of picks and chooses its cultural battlefields that might evidence a stronger need to overrule Smith in the first place? Well, look, I'll go back to your favorite case, Masterpiece, right? I think ADL is worried that if we water down anti-discrimination laws, it will result in more discrimination against Jews. It's not an insane position, right? I get this. Jews have benefited from Title VII and other federal anti-discrimination laws for, for half a century. But I think we just put the Jack Phillipses of the world into context. I mean, maybe Ryan knows. How many bakers are there in the United States that will not make a gay wedding cake? 10? 20? I mean, I mean, I can probably count them on my toes and fingers, right? We're not talking about a large number, right? I think it's... <laughs> offensive to compare this to Jim Crow segregation. You have a very small number of bakers who will provide every manner of service for gay couples except a wedding cake. It's the only thing they won't do. They'll do everything else except for like wedding cakes and, and transgender affirmation cakes. I didn't know that's a thing, but it's a thing, right? That's the new case. Um, half grace, right? That there can be some people in society who don't accept every modern um, progressive orthodoxy. And 
let them exist in their sphere. Let them practice their faith. The world won't fall apart, right? We won't go back to stoning gay people, right? The, the gay marriage laws are not being repealed. Obergefell's safe. We heard that last year in the Dobbs case. I would hope that the ADL can see with people like Jack Phillips as a persecuted religious minority. He's in a similar position that Jews were for many years, right? There are not many Jack Phillipses. You know, Arlene uh, Baronel Stutzman up in, you know, with her flower shop, she just retired, I think. Uh, have grace and, and, and let people of different beliefs exist. This is something that would be beneficial. Uh, but I don't know that the ADL can take that position. They're so committed to this. We need to limit all manifests of hate that they're getting their protection that can only help Jews. And I think it's, it's unfortunate. Yeah. I, Ryan, I think some that's just thoughts from you. Yeah, no, I, I really, that was a beautiful summation by Josh, uh, have grace. And uh, I'll tell you the, I think what we're seeing is, is as society increasingly secularizes, and there's no question if you look at every measure, sociological measure, uh, religious measures, society is secularizing. Um, and, and some of that is just the, the fact that those who used to claim faith or, or, or who really didn't have any were, were sort of falling away from it because uh, there's no cultural pushback on it. Uh, but however you measure it, um, as society secularizes, those who are orthodox, those who have faith are going to increasingly stick out and be obvious. And I think that as you, as you begin to elevate the interests of preventing offense, or avoiding "quote unquote" psychological harm or things of that nature, which are which are injuries of a sort, and it certainly can't, should not be dismissed, but they're very different than the public safe, safety and health interests that uh, used to qualify as, as as carving out free exercise. And as as I think you see society secularized, as these interests of psychological safety are elevated, um, there is going to be pressure on those who take orthodox stands who practice their faith, because that faith is going to stick out. It is going to be noticeable. Um, and I, I, I think the Smith standard is very poorly equipped to deal with that kind of cultural moment that we're sitting in right now. And it cries out for more robust protection for those who do practice their faith, who do take their faith very seriously. Um, and and I think that when you, when you can elevate an interest like, for instance, in the paper that Josh wrote, of preventing animal animal cruelty or avoiding animal pain becomes akin to protecting public health and safety. Uh, that's when you've come to a point where religious exercise is under threat. And the Smith uh, decision has no answer to that in this cultural moment. That's well said. My thanks to Senior Counsel at ADF, Ryan Bangert, and to Professor Josh Blackman, the author of today's paper for joining me today. We will be sending around a link to today's event to all of those of you who have registered. We will also be uploading and archiving them on the YouTube channel at heritage.org. So be sure to share today's program with those who might be interested. Thanks so much for joining us again. We'll see you next time.